And hello again, everyone. Welcome to another edition of HBS Legal Trends. I'm John Ray, and folks, we have a really important topic today on aberrant verdicts and the strategies to rein them in. And we have two fantastic guests, Michelle Foster Earl, who is the CEO of OmniSure. Michelle, welcome. Thank you. Welcome. Yeah, thank you. And Sandra Chanfloni is with us, and Sandra is a partner in the Atlanta office of Hall Booth Smith. Sandy, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming on, to both of you for coming on. So before we get started, let's give an introduction for both of you. Michelle Earl, CEO of OmniSure, give an introduction to you and your firm. How are you serving folks out there? I'm Michelle Foster Earl. I'm the CEO, a founder, and majority owner of OmniSure Consulting Group. And OmniSure was founded in August of 2000, specifically to serve the healthcare industry and the senior care industry to help prevent losses, avoid lawsuits. We have a nationwide network of clinicians that consult to hospitals, surgery centers, nursing homes, individual doctors, and healthcare professionals. And we help prevent lawsuits, improve care. Terrific. Sandy Chenfloni, talk a little bit about your work at Hall Booth Smith. Thanks. Yeah, so I am a member of our National Trial Council program. So I am the person that you will usually see coming on cases all over the country. And we, I focus my practice on medical malpractice and do some long-term care as well. I'm the head of our COVID-19 litigation task force. You'll also see me in that context nationally. So my practice primarily deals with catastrophic loss cases. I'm licensed in numerous states, but I'm also pro hoc around the country as well for various cases, including obstetrical emergencies any kind of stroke cases and infectious disease matters as well. So let's talk about, let's define the term here, I guess, if you will, Sandy, what are we talking about when we're talking about aberrant verdicts, specifically in the medical malpractice space? Yeah. So when you'll hear the term nuclear verdicts, thrown around pretty frequently, or at least in recent history. What we're talking about here are those outlier verdicts that you see. It's not necessarily something that is limited to post-pandemic era litigation, but it's been one of those things that has been occurring over the last decade or so, where we're seeing these astronomical jury verdicts coming out of uh, places that or jurisdictions that typically you wouldn't see happen. So a good example in the medical malpractice space is some 20, 20, sorry, 229 million jury verdicts out of Maryland for a birth trauma case. We'll see maybe 30 million for a, a spinal injury case involving some epidural abscesses and things like that. And it's not really limited to just hospitals and providers. We're also seeing the expansion of these current verdicts into the long-term care space as well. And I think that we're seeing a lot of this in bleeding into the, the senior living facilities or the, the long-term care space, mostly because the perception of systemic 
issues with our nursing care and our end-of-life care. So you're seeing a lot of these verdicts pop up more frequently now than you've ever seen them before. And there's a lot of reasons for that. I'm sure we'll talk about that today. Sure, absolutely. Now, you mentioned the term nuclear verdict. So let's define what we're talking about here between aberrant verdict and nuclear verdict. They're essentially the same thing. We call them aberrant verdicts in our office, mostly because they are the outliers. They are not, they are what is vastly publicized. Most people hear nuclear verdicts because of just the sheer size of and the amount of money that is coming out of foreign jurisdiction. But they're essentially the same exact thing. We just prefer to call them aberrant verdicts versus nuclear verdicts. Got it. Okay. That sounds great. Now, Michelle, let's talk about from your perspective as a, from the risk management space, talk about what risk managers, underwriters, claims teams that are in the medical malpractice space, what do you believe is driving these kind of verdicts? You'll hear claims people talk about the increased frequency of high severity claims. And so I like it that Hall Booth and Smith tends to call these aberrant verdicts because there are quite a few verdicts that are just average verdicts. They're, I think, the in the Ashram 2020 benchmarking analysis, the cost of the most frequent claim was for treatment-related issues. And it was, I think it was 41% of those claims only cost $170,000. So most of the verdicts that do come back are lower, much lower. But we have seen a number of very, people call them nuclear verdicts. Some of them call them mega verdicts or shock verdicts. But, but if we talk about it in terms of dollars, in 2016, we started seeing an increase in the number of verdicts that were over 10 million. And in fact, from 2016, it grew every year to 2019, where there were 52 verdicts that we know of in, in MedMal that were over 10 million. In fact, in 20, I'm actually getting some of this data from the Conning Report that was shared at Plus Medical, but in 2022, if you looked at the number of medical malpractice verdicts over 25 million, there were an incredible number. In fact, it was 22. In 2022, we had 22 $25 million plus verdicts. So I think the consensus is that there's a few things happening. First, social inflation. And so what is social inflation? Mm-hmm. It is the tendency for insurance claims costs to increase more than general economic inflation. I think that's one thing we need to understand is social inflation. And what's driving social inflation is societal anger. And I think you we've seen that in our politics. We've seen that with the lack of trust and confidence in corporate America and in our regulators and in our healthcare providers. You know, the the pandemic shed light on just how much controversy there is in medicine itself. Mm-hmm. Now, I will say healthcare providers have more trust than most other professions in general, the nurses do, but because of the consolidation of hospitals and physician practices and telehealth, 
there's a lot more corporatization of healthcare and a lot less personalized attention. And so I think that causes us to maybe think less about the numbers, corporate America, so we can sock it to them. Yeah. It's profits over people kind right. of thing. They're so. the one, they're, they've got the deep pockets, quote unquote. So let's sock it to them. Yeah, you know, that kind if, of thinking. If you were going to your family physician that you've known for 10 years and that physician made a mistake, you'd almost feel compassion for the physician. Of course, they're going to take care of you, but there's telehealth and products liability and so much in the corporate America, every, the pharmaceutical companies, what's happened with the opioid epidemic. We don't think of healthcare as being delivered by our family physician that has become our friend over the years. It's more, it's less personal. And so I think that's driving it. And then we just, the other thing is we just don't have the same relationship with money. We think of billionaires like we used to think of millionaires. There's lots of them. Yeah. It's money just doesn't seem to have the same value in our minds as it actually does in our checking accounts. And I think that's interesting too, because when you think about when you think about money, we've become so desensitized by large numbers. We hear on the news that our government is going to put together a $1.6 trillion care package. And I think juries now don't have any, or not, I, don't want to, I don't want a blanket statement out there that most jurors don't have any concept of money, but but really they, they look at 100000 a $1 million dollars, it doesn't really matter how many zeros come after the one anymore because they're just so used to seeing these large numbers in daily life. Look at the Powerball. How many times did, was that over $2 billion or $6 billion or whatever it was? So people really just, they have lost the sense of what is a reasonable amount of money. And, and, that, and you're seeing that from not just the litigation context, but you're also seeing it in terms of People demanding money at work, getting increases in pay and things like that. It's a common thread throughout their life. So when they see numbers put in front of them by the plaintiff's bar that are astronomical, $16 million, $24 million, they don't even bat an eye anymore. So. Yeah. And those are the verdicts that get the news. So that's what they've heard about, even though there are... So many verdicts that are a lot less, that's not the ones they hear about. The other thing I think is that we jurors are more empathetic. We all know someone who's had something go wrong medically or has been become addicted to opioids or had a mental health concern. And so when we when we see somebody that's been harmed by healthcare system, we, we think about our mom who had to go through opioid withdrawals, or we think about people that we know. So I think we have more empathetic jurors that are angry with, with our system. Sure. Sandy, what about plaintiff tactics? How do those play in here? Yeah, so the plaintiffs are, they're, they know that most jurors are coming in with their own societal biases, they are selecting jurors that they can easily manipulate. Those are the most more emotional, emotionally driven jurors. When we're talking about what the plaintiff bar is doing to drive up these verdicts, they're taking advantage of 
the emotional thinkers in society. And those folks that they hear certain buzzwords and uh, the jurors are easily persuaded by that. The other thing too is that when the plaintiff bar is has always been very organized, far more organized than the defense bar has ever been. And I think now you're seeing, you're actually seeing the effects of that organization more so now. You're seeing the plaintiffs are sharing a lot more information. Some plaintiff attorneys who are really pushing the boundaries of what they can and cannot do. And then they're recording their success stories to each other. You'll see one plaintiff firm tries to do tries a certain tactic early on in a case. And if they're allowed to do it unchallenged by the defense bar, you're going to see that the other plaintiff attorneys are going to pick up on that and they're going to start acting accordingly. So I think that's that. And then the vast majority of plaintiffs like to put numbers out on, a, on in front of a jury. So they're going to put these astronomical numbers out in front of a jury. And then you have some defense attorneys just try to pick apart that number instead of basically saying, hey, this is actually a more reasonable number. And this is what the actual cost is for future medical costs, right? If we're talking, we can use that as a good example. Plaintiffs will put together a life care plan for those cases that involve future medical care. And they will present this information from sometimes not even a medical provider. They'll put this person on the stand to say, hey, this is what this person needs for future medical care. And this is how much I believe it's going to cost over the course of their life. Left unchallenged, the jury only sees that number. So we at Hall Booth are unique in the sense that we do not just rest on our laurels and just attack plaintiff's life care plan. We put together our own life care plan based upon the medical history and and we sort of challenge plaintiff's numbers by putting together a more reasonable assessment of what the damages are in a case. And so I think that is that certainly does help the jury's perception of what is reasonable. If you don't give them an alternative figure, they're going to believe that whatever plaintiff is telling them is the more reasonable number because you didn't put something forward. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. Let's talk about some other strategies to combat the plaintiff's bar beyond life plans and having your own life plan introduced in court. Yeah. The other, the other thing, and I think to Michelle's point, dealing with social inflation, how do we deal with that now? I think it really does start with just getting a great jury and panel. And it's truly by asking, by asking the more indirect questions. So for example, Everybody has internal biases with respect to what their belief in the pandemic was, whether or not they received the vaccine, booster shots, so on and so forth. So by asking those questions, albeit maybe not related to the case itself, but putting forward or asking questions that will reveal some level of what their implicit biases are, whether or not if they live in a rural community, whether or not they trust their local hospital. Asking those sort of indirect questions is going to elicit responses that will give you 
more information about that particular juror than you would typically if you're just asking about, hey, this is a birth trauma case. How many people have have had issues during a, a labor and delivery or something like that? Asking those direct questions are fine, but you're not going to get a full and complete assessment of one of the jurors that you're trying to impanel. So asking questions that are going to provide information about what that particular juror, whether they, they, and I hate to say it, but whether you watch Fox News, MSNBC, that kind of thing, yeah. um, will definitely tell you a little bit more about what how that person is going to review and render a verdict. Yeah, it's it's just trying to get a little psychographic data. That, that yeah, so that's yeah. yeah, that makes sense. So Michelle, obviously the, these are stressful points in time for healthcare organizations, and you've got some ideas on how defense attorneys can help their healthcare organization clients during these times. Yes, so I think one of the things that they can do that is very helpful is really educate the hospital, the medical provider, the long-term care facility leadership about plaintiff tactics. They they need to know that the plaintiff's bar is going to use, sometimes it's called reptile theory, but they're going to try and get people angry. They're going to try and make it an emotional case. And those kind of emotional, psychological fear tactics scare uh, the healthcare providers, and they don't want to see their names in the media and things like that. It, it can have a damaging psychological effect on them, and they can want to rush in and settle quickly just to make the matter go away. And sometimes that's not what's best. So having someone assigned, whether it's the claims adjuster or just someone that can really hold the hand of the the healthcare provider and just be reassuring through the process. I think that makes a big difference, helping them just to understand the process and to not be scared by it. And also, I think the healthcare organizations can help defense if they can provide them with data about how much charity work do they do, how what are their quality measures, how many years have they been providing medicine? And what are their success stories? How have they served the community? How many people do they employ in the community? There's so many positives that if the defense attorney can draw that out of the healthcare provider, it not only makes them feel better about what they're doing and put things into perspective, but I think it also will help the defense if they can share that sort of thing with the jury. Yeah, that makes sense. Sandy, what's your perspective on that as a defense counsel? What have you seen in terms of those healthcare organizations that have been most helpful to you that you're trying to defend? Yeah, I I have to say that some of the most successful cases that I've tried really start with, and I think Michelle said it earlier, people are less trusting of big corporations and things like that. Putting a face to a corporation and making it a little bit more personal, having somebody 
from the corporation or even a nurse involved in the care or a physician involved in the care sitting at the defense table, albeit it's not their favorite pastime sitting at a defense table during a two-week trial, it definitely does make a difference in terms of jury perspective. Um, It puts a more personal touch on the case itself. So they're not looking at basically four defense attorneys sitting at a table and there's no corporate space, so to speak. And that just shows that they, it, having somebody from the actual healthcare facility sitting with you and being there to support the defense is now just, it has to be mandatory. It is critical to the defense to, to make things, to make these cases more personal and less about corporate profits and things like that. And the other thing too is, is the, having the healthcare facility support the defense by allowing them the resources and access to their folks is certainly really helpful from the start of a case. I have some clients that are just wonderful where they, whatever you need, whoever you need to talk to, you get those early interviews in, which is what I'm doing this week out here in Oregon, but getting those early faces to the case really helped in generating the defense. Yeah. that I think education too, educating the, the plaintiff and educating the jury about what the, what large awards really do mean to the future of the hospital. Money that is awarded to a plaintiff that's not necessary is money that's taken out of the healthcare system that would otherwise be used on staffing, raises, patient care, research, charitable care. There's so many. When you take money and do a mega verdict, that is money that is not going into the care of the community. I think that's an important thing to just educate everybody on as well. That's a great distinction, Michelle. That's a really good distinction. Yeah, that's yeah, that that's a great point because it, that otherwise that those jurors default to back to what we talked about earlier, which is this is a big corporation with lots of money behind them plus a big insurance company or whatever, right? There's lots of money to draw from, and it's not really going to hurt them. And that you're countering that thought process. I will tell you when I, when, so I had my first child in 1999, right before the med mal crisis. Mm. And when I got pregnant again, I wanted to go back to my same OB gen to deliver my baby. And guess what? This was a very well-known OB gen who her whole practice, a group of 20 different OB gens stopped delivering babies because the, malpractice rates were so high that they couldn't afford the premiums. And so it wasn't until the caps went back in place, we got caps in Texas. They capped the lawsuits at 250 per defendant, 750 total. And then everybody got back into practicing medicine. But it was it was hard to find good OBGYNs because of the cost of malpractice insurance. So it really has a ripple effect and people just don't know that until it's too late. We have to educate them. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Yeah. Michelle, Sandy referenced earlier life care plans, talked about how they play out in these cases. Why don't you address that topic from your perspective? 
We hear in the news how medicines are not affordable, nobody can afford health care, the rates of insulin are off the charts, and so there's there's the sensationalism around the cost of healthcare. And so people have lost touch with what it really does cost to provide care. And so I think with the life care plans, we have to make sure that we put real numbers to the cost of the care. And you can get that from what does Medicare pay for an inpatient stay at a nursing home? What what does it cost to have home health care? It's often not what we think it is. It's not, it's expensive, but it's not a mega verdict expensive, expensive. It doesn't cost $50 million to take care of a paraplegic. So I think that's one thing we can do. The other thing that we really need to do is just take care of the, what the family values. Sometimes we go straight to the dollars and we don't even really know what it is that's important to them. It might be that what's important is that the their son or daughter or mother or whoever's been harmed be able to stay at home. Maybe they need, they want to have 24-hour care. Maybe they want to be able to stay in their you know, rural community and not have to move to the big city for medical attention. There are certain things that if you just dig into what is important to the plaintiff, you may be able to meet those needs in a way that is not necessarily these big life care financial plans. So I, I think that's important. Just really knowing what they want, not the money, but what they actually want. Sandy, you want to add to that? I think Michelle makes a really good point. I, and I think we can start doing that from the defense perspective really early on in a case and having these discussions during depositions with the plaintiff about what it is they actually need, what it is they actually want, and, and have some kind of concept going into these cases of what it is they're bringing the lawsuit for. And I find that most plaintiffs start lawsuits because they just want to be heard. And there's two different ways that you can approach cases once you understand what the actual motivation is of the plaintiff. Not the plaintiff's attorney, because we know what their motivation is, but the actual plaintiff themselves and getting some idea of whether or not they felt maybe not heard by the healthcare system that they're bringing the case again. I think that I think it's really important to personalize it in that way. And you can start doing that early on during plaintiff's depositions for sure. Yeah. The, 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 some great thoughts there, Michelle, let's switch the lens to adjusters and some mistakes that claim adjusters make along the way. I, I spent a couple of years managing a third party administrator, a TPA and had a lot of claims adjusters that reported to me. And I learned a lot in the process. And we tend to look at the cost of claims and we think, oh, it's because of the very expensive defense attorneys. And we may try and negotiate their rates down, or we may try and limit the amount of defense dollars given to the defense attorneys. And I think, and sometimes we rush to settle it. We we think the sooner we can get off this, the better, and we'll know what our loss ratio is going to be and we can close this out. But I think that's very short-sighted sometimes. It really makes sense to spend money on defense 
and to have a good defense attorney and to pay them to do the work up front because it saves you in the long run, might save you a, a mega verdict if you pay your attorney up front and don't mind paying a good one. And then not rush. I think it's important to really give the case the time to to determine what really is important here and not rush into mediation. Yeah, that's a great point. I can see, and Sandy, I'd love for you to weigh in on this, how there's the capacity for sticking with it is could be an issue here, right? These are big, complex cases that take a long time to to unfold and just having the stamina, if you will, to hang in there. Yeah. And it's interesting too, because I think that a good example of this is the COVID-19 litigation mm-hmm. that is going on nationally. During COVID, there were a lot of states that put together legislative packages that protected our healthcare providers from lawsuits. And it's just very interesting now because obviously we are now three, what, three years that post the start of the pandemic. And for those carriers and healthcare providers that can really stick it out, we're now seeing that those legislative packages actually do have teeth. And it, it took three years. <laughs> it took three years that of litigating these cases and filing the motions and things like that. But being able to have the resources of a defense attorney and the support of your client and the carrier behind you to to test these types of theories and proceed with motion practice and try different defense strategies that you probably wouldn't have thought of pre-pandemic. I think that makes all the difference in the world. And I really do think that the COVID-19 litigation has helped the defense in that regard, because uh, you're able to, you see the support that you're getting from your clients now where you can file motions more, more easily and you can take the time to craft more sound arguments um, and try different things that maybe you wouldn't have had the opportunity to do previously. But we're now in the COVID world, we're COVID litigation world, we're definitely seeing the tide change quite a bit where the courts are now acknowledging that there there was some immunity extended to these healthcare providers that were doing the best that they could with a, a disease that they really absolutely knew nothing about. <laughs> In the early pandemic, in early 2020. So it's really interesting. And it's so interesting to see to see the arguments that are coming out from even the plaintiff's bar on how they're trying to connect the dots for courts and the jury and things like that. We know that it, it back in the early days of the pandemic, there, there was just no way to really know how to prevent the transmission of this disease. And especially when you have people walking around that are asymptomatic and they can spread the disease. So I think, and I think we're seeing this, that all play out now with the recent, recent verdict out in Washington. I think it's really interesting, but yes, I think we're definitely doing things right now because we're given the resources that we need and the flexibility that we need. I'm not, you know, I'm a, I could always support what Michelle says, obviously, pay your defense attorneys. I, I might be a little bit biased, but paying your defense attorneys certainly, certainly is important. 
And it matters for the whole industry. I will say that you were just talking about the verdict that came out of Washington. It was a few days ago, the headline in the McKnight's long-term care news that life care centers was vindicated in early COVID wrongful death case. So that was the nursing home where they had the huge outbreak, many deaths, and was generally considered a good nursing facility. I think it had high ratings. So it was interesting that that was even before all the immunities went into p- to play. And, mm-hmm. and so they, thankfully, good defense, they fought that. And, uh, and that's going to matter for all the other long-term care facilities that have cases that follow. Yeah, absolutely. For sure. It's, it's one thing to manage a case after it's filed. It's another thing to prevent it altogether. So let's talk about that piece of the puzzle. I'd love if both of you could weigh in on what insurance carriers and their health care organization clients can do to get ahead of claims and to avoid these aberrant verdicts altogether. Michelle, well, you want to start? I, I, yeah. <laughs> that, you're, now you're speaking my language. Yeah. Omnisure is a, a clinical risk services firm paid for by the insurance companies to really get ahead of claims to help these healthcare providers improve systems, put in good clinical risk management programs, and then when something does happen, to get pre-claim patient safety-driven advice on demand. And we often get calls, Omnisure takes calls 24 hours a day, seven days a week from policyholders because that's how they're providing care. <laughs> and we often have to help the healthcare provider figure out how to best serve the patient. So when somebody's done something and they know that a patient's been harmed, they they panic. They don't. They, we got into healthcare to help people, not hurt them. And but things happen. It still is a practicing medicine. We don't know everything, and we're not perfect, and we are human. Helping those healthcare providers provide a really compassionate response after an adverse event by being compassionate with the healthcare provider, and then helping that healthcare provider meet the needs of the patient. Talk about what you know, what they can do. We had a call just less than a month ago, I think, that it was a patient who was going to a physical therapy clinic, was actually harmed at the physical therapy clinic by the physical therapist, didn't say anything at the time, but then came back and said, I want a copy of my records. I want you to know I was hurt in physical therapy and I I want to, I don't want to pay for this service. Um, I have to go somewhere else. And so the physical therapist called and said, we didn't know we are looking at the incident. And what do we do? Should we turn this into our malpractice carrier? We said, well, it's not a claim yet. They're not demanding money. Let's talk about how to be compassionate with this particular patient so that they get their needs met. They don't, they want to get, that's what they want. They want to be cared for. They want to know you're not going to abandon them and they're not going to suffer indefinitely because of this. They just want to be taken care of. And so that healthcare provider came back and said, thank you. The call went really, and we got this resolved without a claim and we're going to continue to provide care. Having that advice on demand is so important to get ahead of that and just show care. And sadly, a lot of healthcare providers won't call for help if they have to call their insurance carrier 
because they're afraid. They're afraid that's going to result in a claim file, even if the patient doesn't sue, meaning their insurance premiums are going to go up or the underwriter is going to think they have a problem and that'll affect them at renewal. So it is nice that carriers can make available a independent third-party advice on demand helpline. And the other thing is often if the if the first person that the healthcare provider calls is an attorney, they're not necessarily patient safety driven. The attorney is going to be thinking about the defense. They're going to assume this is going to become a lawsuit. We want to make sure you've got the documentation. We want to get depositions early. And they're going to rush to treat it like like lawsuit when, you know, it may be that we can prevent that altogether. I think that's the best way that healthcare organizations can get ahead is have that advice on demand. Yeah. Yeah. Sandy, what are your thoughts on that? Michelle, I think the services that Omnishore provides are unique, certainly, but they are helpful in maybe preventing lawsuits. I think from the defense attorney perspective, utilize us for education. I can, there's so many times that I meet with witnesses and they're shaking in their boots when I, when they meet me, I'm like, I'm on your side. I don't know why you're getting it, why you're scared of me, but they're healthcare providers. They do not get exposure to to attorneys in general unless they're involved in a case. But if we can provide educational services to those providers, just whether it be yearly, whether it be quarterly, and provide even just a presentation on on documentation and what the attorneys see at the end on, on the other side of things after the patient care is already rendered, maybe that could also help providers feel be less fearful of litigious plaintiffs and things like that. They generally speaking, I would say that the vast majority of my clients, the nurses and doctors that I represent, they really do provide the best care that they can. Unfortunately though, when you're talking about litigation, you're distilling patient care down to a document, a printed version of an electronic medical record. And what can we do to assist these providers in conveying the level of compassion and care that they provide on a daily basis in the, in their documentation and their records keeping? I think certainly we, as defense attorneys in this space, can help our healthcare providers with just general education and getting folks comfortable with dealing with attorneys and not be so fearful if a claim does arise. And understand that they have somebody to support them. So I think that's probably where we would add value to to the healthcare space, certainly. I have to agree. Having attorneys tell stories and give examples really makes a difference with the providers. So they're told all the time, document. If you didn't document it, it wasn't done. And they're told where to document, what to document, et cetera. But when they have examples, like case examples of this is the documentation that saved the day, or this is the kind of documentation that lost the case. It puts a, people remember those stories better than they remember the to-do list. And I've got a great example of a defense attorney who was just thrilled. OmniSure had a client that we provided 
a risk assessment for, and we did some documentation training. And one of the recommendations that we made was to do more than the document by exception. A lot of nurses to save time and medical records, the way they're set up, they'll document, they'll check the box or they'll document patient complaint of pain, et cetera. But they leave out some of the narrative that could be very helpful. And we had a case not too long ago where a nurse had implemented our recommendation out of our training, which was document the positives. If the family comes in and says, wow, you're giving such excellent care to my mom, write that down. It's Mm. a quote from the resident or the patient family member. And uh, we had a defense attorney that was able to basically defend an assisted living facility that had a, a patient, the family sued. There was a stage two pressure ulcer progressed to a stage three. They discharged the patient to a higher level of care. The pressure ulcers worsened until they went to a hospital. And then the patient died in the hospital and sued all three, the assisted living, the hospital and the nursing home. And our client, the assisted living, was able to get out of the case, even though the pressure ulcer progressed from a two to a three um, in their care. But it was because of not only they document that they contacted wound care and made arrangements to move the person to a higher level of care, but they documented the family saying, I wish mom could stay here. She's always gotten such excellent care. And that's an example of, I'm sure the defense attorney is going to share with their documentation training, these stories, the success stories and the what not to do stories, help them wrap their mind around, how does this look in my own practice? What can I do? Yeah. And to use the fire department analogy, use your fire department for fire safety, not just for emergencies. That's what both of you are saying here. And this, (laughs) yeah, this has been terrific. What what a, a, just a lot of sage advice here from both of you. I'm delighted that we could have you here on the show Before we let you go, though, let's get to the most important question, which I'm sure there's some folks that hearing this interview might want to be in touch. So let's tell them how they can do that. Michelle, you want to go? Absolutely. I am easily reached at Michelle, M-I-C-H-E-L-E, at Omnisure, O-M-N-I-S-U-R-E.com. You can find us at Omnisure.com. And our helpline is available to clients 24-7 through their insurance carriers. But do reach out. I'd love to talk with anyone who needs to discuss clinical risk management. Sandy? Great. Yeah. So my contact number, you can always reach me on my direct dial, even when I'm not in the office, 404-954-5018. Or you can reach me by email, S. C-I-A-N-F-L-O-N-E at hallboothsmith.com. We joke that my my last name is a little difficult and I have a very long email address. You can always Google me and and just Google Sandra Champloni at hallboothsmith and you can find my contact information that way as well. That's the advantage of a name like that. You pop right up there, Sandy. <laughs> so that's a good thing. Michelle Earl, OmniSure and Sandy Chanfloni from Halbu Smith. What a pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah. Thank you for having us. Absolutely. And folks, just a quick reminder for Halbu Smith experience across legal disciplines combined with a focus on the unique business or personal requirements of that client is a hallmark 
of the firm, and their clients receive the attention, expertise, and cost-effectiveness of a smaller law firm with a full-service and strong regional presence typical of a large firm. At HBS, their promise is serving to achieve excellence. For more information, visit hallboothsmith.com. Once again, I'm John Ray, host of HBA, HBS Legal Trends. Thank you so much again to Michelle Earle and to Sandy Chenfloni for being on the show. Join us next time for another edition of HBS Legal Trends.